Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our walk through the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here he's going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18 and the birth of the seed. We do want to let you know about an upcoming online course at Theopolis with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. That class will be on biblical numerology and will run for six weeks for two hours on Saturdays. For more information and to sign up, there's a link in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 18 in the life of Abraham. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us life and for bringing us into your kingdom. We ask now as we take hold of your word that you would help us to understand it better. We might learn things that would give us a clearer vision into your purposes in the world and in our lives. We ask this now in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Today we have our seventh class in the history of Abraham. And we will look at Genesis chapter 18. As we've pointed out before, the life of Abraham is arranged in sections, and there is a distinct progression and theological order to what we find. And it really comes in two chapter units. The chapter divisions were, as I'm sure most of you know, added much later in history than the Bible itself was actually written. So were the verses. There's nothing inspired about chapter divisions or verses, verse numberings. And actually, chapters 12 and 13, as we saw when we were there, form a unit, actually starting about 12, verse 6. And then having to do with dominion over the land, we saw Abraham take dominion, establish altars, sanctuaries, places where he would lead the people in worship. And then uh, famine and his descent into Egypt, and then an exodus out of Egypt with many spoils and then reestablishment of dominion. He goes back and rebuilds all the altars where he was before and rests in the land. And that brings to an end that story. Then in chapters 14 and 15, we follow the land theme. We have an attack on the land by Chedor Laomer actually defending himself against Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we see Abraham's dominion over the land, in that Abraham was able to defeat Chedor Laomer and all the kings allied with him. So even though Abraham didn't possess the land, he still has this shadow dominion. And remember that we saw all the places where Chedor Laomer fought and all the people that Chedor Laomer defeated were exactly the same places and people that Israel encountered when they came out of Egypt. Israel got out of Egypt, they got to the promised land, and they encountered giants. Well, Chedorlaomer had already defeated giants. And then Abraham defeated Chedorlaomer. They were at Kadesh. Well, Chedorlaomer had defeated Kadesh. And Abraham had defeated Chedorlaomer. And so the whole of Genesis 14 formed a big prophecy of what could happen. And the Jews, when they got to the border of the Promised Land, were supposed to think back and say, Yeah, Shemites have defeated these people before. And not only did the Shemites under Chedorlaomer defeat them, but Abraham even with his little band of men, was even more powerful than they were. So what can stand before us? But they didn't reason that way. They didn't understand the prophetic significance of the chapter. And, of course, after Abraham had defeated Chedorlaomer, we got to go straight into chapter 15 because it says Abraham was suddenly afraid because, after all, Chedorlaomer was much more powerful, humanly speaking. And he figured he'd come back. And so God appears and says, There's no need to be afraid. I'm your shield and your great reward and says, you will have the land, and I swear by myself. And God passes between the parts of the animals, and what did that mean? Who remembers? Okay? That's right. God says, if I don't keep this covenant, may I be ripped in half and devoured by the birds. Well, we know that God is not going to be ripped in half and devoured by the birds, and so we know that God is going to keep the covenant. Then we got to chapter 16 and 17 last time, and that was a unit. We start with the birth of Ishmael, who is born before the great change. The great change where everyone's name is changed, the circumcision takes place, and there's a transition from the old to the new, from the old world under the flesh to a new world with new names. And 
he is driven out, and then there's a promise of restoration and sustenance given to him, and then there's circumcision, where the fleshly line is cut off and restored. That is, there's a death and resurrection process that went on. We reflected on that last time. Now this time, we come to chapters 18 and 19, which are again a unit, as we'll see. It starts with the three persons who appear to Abraham, and Abraham shares a communion meal with them. They promise that Isaac will be born, and then they set their faces towards Sodom, and Abraham argues with God about Sodom, or so it seems, and then they go down to Sodom and evaluate, and they destroy Sodom, and there's another exodus. So we'll look at that next time. There's a Passover, and there's an exodus in Genesis 19. That's real obvious when we read that Lot served the men unleavened bread, but we'll get to all that stuff next time. There are one exodus after another here in this part of the Bible. But today we're going to break it up because both chapters are very long. This chapter 18 has 33 verses and chapter 19 has 38. And so we'll break it up and just take chapter 18 today. But remember our overall theme this time is that the birth of the seed involves the destruction of the wicked. And today we'll look at three sections, communion with God, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 18, the promise of laughter, verses 9 to 15 of chapter 18, and then the evaluation of the wicked, verses 16 to 33 of chapter 18. First of all, communion with God. Let's read this section. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the terebinths or oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. All those things are significant. We wouldn't be told them if they weren't important. All right? And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. Look at that. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. Three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures, this is a huge amount, of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf, gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and placed them before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Communion with God. First of all, the setting. There are specific details here that are important to what's going on. First of all, we see that the Lord appears to him by the oaks or terebinths of Mamre. That was near Hebron, one of the sanctuary altars that Abraham has set up in the land. Abraham was to lead the people in worship and to be an evangelist, and we've discussed this before, how he was ministering to the Gentiles in the area. Now, the oaks also in the Bible are a picture of the shade of God's covenant. It's the heat of the day, but he is shaded by these trees, and this, of course, is picked up repeatedly in Scripture. So the oaks are the shade of God's covenant and protection, and that's Abraham's situation here. Second thing we notice is it's in the heat of the day. We've had nighttime things and daytime things. Remember the vision in chapter 15 was all at night, and it got darker and darker until we got to midnight Passover type scene. In chapter 19, which is part of the story we're reading now, the two angels come to Sodom in the evening, and then they pass the night there with the unleavened bread, and then they come out in the morning. So that's a nighttime scene. This daytime scene, I think, we're told that it was the heat of the day. We're not just told nothing. The Holy Spirit gives us this detail to connect in our minds with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when the promises draw toward fulfillment, both for the righteous and the wicked. Throughout the Bible, God comes and says, I'm giving you these promises. And the time will come when the day of the Lord arrives, and when the day of the Lord arrives and the sun shines and all the light goes out and you can see everything the way it's supposed to be, I'll move in and I'll bring judgment and blessing. 
that day of the Lord is always something future, and then in little ways it comes in history. There's a day of the Lord here and a day of the Lord there, but there's always a great day of the Lord still to come. Well, here's the day of the Lord. God appears. He draws near to Abraham. He comes in and he says, okay, I told you in the past you're going to have a son. I told you a while back that Sarah was going to have a son and you're to name him Laughter. Now I'm telling you that very soon you're going to have a son. You're going to conceive. The time is now. And by the way, since I'm moving in and blessing you, I'm also going to move in and destroy the wicked. Because whenever God moves in, he does both. He brings blessing to his people and destruction to the enemies. They always go together, and we'll see that. So I think the heat of the day here is designed to bring us to mind the day of the Lord, and that is what's going on. This is one of the days of the Lord in history. Just as today is the Lord's day. As the New Testament tells us, every eighth day, every Sunday, is the day of the Lord. We meet with him, and he's specially here with us today. Finally, it says Abraham was sitting in the tent door, and that's not insignificant either because doorways in the Bible are associated with birth. They're associated with birth. Now, this is not the way we think in the modern world, but it's an analogy that runs through the Bible in a lot of different kinds of ways, and it's not one that we would think of because of our culture. And we should just leave it as an analogy and not think more about it. But notice down in verse 10, it also says that Sarah was listening at the tent door when God said, you'll have a son. And the reason is because in the ancient world, they always called the human body a house. You can look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and you'll find this long description of the human body as a house. It talks about the doorways and the windows and the shutters being closed and all this type of stuff. And this analogy of the human body with the house meant that there was a doorway on the human body for birth. And so... The woman standing at the doorway to hear a message about birth or about having children is appropriate in terms of biblical analogies. It has to do with birth. It's a birth idea. Similarly, the adoption ritual in the Old Testament, which is called circumcising the ear, was done at the doorpost of the house. The doorpost of the house, the doorway in and out, was a place of birth, a place where you pass into the kingdom and are born anew one way or another. So the idea of a doorway as a transition, as a place of birth, is very common in the Bible. One passage is kind of a twist on this, but shows us how common it is, is 1 Kings 14. Just to give you another example of this doorway in association with birth and children. 1 Kings 14, verses 5 and 6. Now, we don't want to take the time to get the whole context here. I just want you to see the imagery. Now the Lord has said to Ahijah the prophet, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives she will pretend to be another woman. And it came about when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway. He said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. Now the harsh message is that her child who is sick is going to die but it is association with the doorway. Now look in verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. As she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died. So here the twist is that normally what's associated with birth of children is here associated with the death of children. But either way, the context here, the setting, the things that the Holy Spirit chooses to record here in verse 1 set us up for the idea of God drawing near and a new birth, birth of a child to come into the world, a passage into the world of God's kingdom. So it says in verse 2 that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold. Three times, three words for seeing there. We should think about this just for a minute because some of the modern Bibles will say, well, this is just a Hebrew or Semitic way of speech. They say things two or three times. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. And so sometimes your modern Bible will just shorten that down and say, Abraham looked and three men were standing opposite him. But I think that's a mistake. I think that when it's repeated over and over again like this, it's for the purpose of emphasizing something. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. Why? Because seeing in the Bible has to do with evaluation and judgment. 
And that also sets up a theme in the chapter here, which is the eyes of the Lord and the eyes of man seeing and evaluating. Remember in Genesis 1, God saw what he had made and it was good. God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. Whenever attention is called in the Bible to seeing something, think of evaluation. So it's daytime, the sun is shining bright, and it's a time to lift up your eyes and make an evaluation. And Abraham does. He seems to recognize there's something special about these three men. Well, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just given the hospitality, and we see here what people always did. Either way, it's an example of hospitality. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he got up and ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Look at the ideas of hospitality here. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may go on since you visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. Now again, we need to kind of think visually in terms of the images here because they're used throughout the Old Testament and they're designed to picture something for us. As in the Bible it says the Israelite sitting under his vine and under his fig tree is a picture of covenant blessing or Jonah sitting under his gourd and being happy about it till God removes it. These are pictures of being in the kingdom. And here again, the three ideas are brought up here. Rest yourselves under the shade of the tree. I don't think Abraham realizes yet that one of these persons is the God himself who is the shade. And let me wash your feet and serve you a meal. Now why wash their feet? Some of you know, so someone share with the class why he offers to wash their feet. We don't do that today. Are we supposed to? <laughs> All right, but what is true about the dust in the Old Testament? From Genesis 3, do you recall? Okay, it's under a curse. And so beyond the fact that it's dirty is the fact that the ground is cursed. And when you get dirt on you in the Old Testament, you've got curse on you and you have to wash it off. And so that's why there are these sprinklings and baptisms and washings in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, once Jesus comes, the world is cleansed. And we can go barefoot, but in the Old Testament, they never went barefoot. They always had shoes on. The clean animals were the animals that had hooves. The animals that walked with their feet on the ground were unclean. Anything that swarmed around in the dirt was unclean, like the serpent who even eats the dirt and takes the curse into himself. And so... You've got to get that off your feet. And that's why in the Old Testament, right up to the Lord's Supper, the dirt is washed off the feet. And that's why when Moses comes into God's presence, God says, you can take your shoes off because this is holy ground. It's not cursed. And similarly, when Joshua meets the angel of the Lord, the angel says, you can take your shoes off because this is holy ground. It's not cursed. Otherwise, you've got to watch out for that cursed ground. So there's a ministry here. Uh, not just washing the feet and making them cool because it's been very hot, but there's the additional idea of removing the curse and the place of rest. And then finally there's the meal, and Abraham offers to feed them, and that also is part of hospitality. So there's, again, a, a little snapshot of the kingdom here, sitting under the shade of the covenant, cleansed from our defilement, and having fellowship. Verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour. My margin says that one measure equals approximately 11 quarts. So we have 33 quarts of fine flour. That's a lot for just three men. Knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. That's a lot of meat. And he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Abraham assumes the position of a servant. That's another picture of hospitality. We wait on others when we have them in. And in the worship service, Christ comes and waits on us. And that's an amazing thing. But that's what the elders do, elders and deacons do. They wait on us. Jesus comes and waits on us. Notice how Abraham washes their feet and gives them food treats them like kings. And that's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He 
washed their feet and gave them food, and that startled Peter and the rest, you recall. And it should startle us that God honors us this way, and he sets an example for us in how we're to honor others, especially those who are poorer than we are. Might notice one more time how wealthy Abraham was. This was not some wandering nomad here. This was a man with lots of things that he was able to set before these visitors. All right, so communion with God. This is fulfilled in our Lord's Supper that we have today. Just as Abraham sat with God and the angels under the tree and ate, so we sit here today under the canopy of the new covenant and have fellowship with God and the angels. Well, then turning to the promise, promise of laughter. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will return to you when the time revives. And behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door that was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you when the time revives, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, but you did laugh. Okay, what's going on here? Well, I've called this a promise of laughter, and that's what it is. It's God's surprise in history that changes things when we least expect it. Let's notice, first of all, this expression, when the time revives, verses 10 and 14. It shows up twice, and it also shows up in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 16. This is the story of the Shunammite woman, remember, who made a little house for Elisha to live in. And Elisha wanted to do something for her. And Gehazi, Elisha's servant, said she'd like to have a son because... Her husband is old, and she's never been able to have a child. And so Elisha says in 2 Kings 4, verse 16, At this season next year, but what it literally says is, When the time revives, you shall embrace a son. All right? When the time revives. And in verse 17, the same thing. And the woman conceived and bore a son at the season when the time revives as Elisha had said to her. Now, what do you suppose the expression when the time revives refers to? That's right, springtime. Springtime. It's when the world comes back to life. It's the same time of year as Easter and Passover. It has to do, again, with new birth, new life. It's an analogy that the Bible uses a number of times. And if you remember the story of the Shunammite woman, this child is born and then he's killed and brought back to life again. And there are a lot of analogies there with the story of Isaac, you see, who is born here unexpectedly and then has to be sacrificed and is received back again. All right, I've got in your notes here some reflections on this and the larger context that I think would be good for us to think about for a couple of minutes. In Genesis 17, we have circumcision. And remember, circumcision points to God's judgment on the righteous. It cuts away the old flesh. That's the way the Bible speaks of it. But it leaves the righteous alive and able to bear seed. It's a judgment that doesn't kill, but just involves a minimal amount of pain and blood and leaves us still alive. It points, though, to the crucifixion of Christ. What happens right after that is that we have a resurrection. We have, in Genesis 18 and 19, we have God's laughter that points to resurrection and new life for the righteous now that the old flesh has been cut away through judgment. It also points to the destruction of the wicked. And so, in terms of the way God works in history, we have a pattern. And this same pattern will show up other places, and it shows up in the New Testament. The circumcision of chapter 17 points to the crucifixion. The new birth of chapter 18 points to the resurrection and Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit, new life to the world at the spring. And then the destruction of Sodom in chapter 19 points to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And beyond that to the destruction of the wicked in general. But that sequence of events where God comes and cuts away the sin of the world and then brings blessing to the righteous and judgment to the enemies is here in these passages. 
the way Genesis 17 and 18 follow on one another. Crucifixion, Pentecost, and Holocaust, or AD 70. Now, let's look at a little bit more on this laughter theme here. It says, I will return to you when the time revives, and behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, another image of birth that was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So not only all these years had she been unable to have children, but now it had become doubly impossible. Now this is the theme of the virgin birth that we have throughout the Old Testament. We call it the virgin birth because when we get to the New Testament, that's the fulfillment of it. But God had said in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent, right? But all these women are barren and unable to have children. Sarah's the first. She can't have any children. So how is she going to have a seed who's going to destroy the serpent? Then Rebecca turns out to be barren, and Rachel turns out to be barren, and it goes on down. The mother of Samson, the mother of John the Baptist, the mother of Samuel. The three great Nazarites, powerful men in the Bible, all had barren women for mothers. And there are other examples as well. The Shunammite woman we just saw. We come down to the virgin birth, and we have, again, a closed womb that has no way humanly speaking, could ever be opened up to have a child. And there we, again we have the miracle of the closed womb being opened up and a miraculous new birth, powerful new life for the world. And that's what this points to here. How are we going to ever have the seed come into the world to destroy the serpent? Well, God has to act. He has to take away sin. And that's what circumcision was all about. It takes away the flesh and puts them into the spirit. It enables God to give them new names, from Saul to Paul, from Israel to Christian. The book of Acts says from then on they were called Christians, new names. And here as well, from Simon to Peter, from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah. Change of names, new world, resurrection. Now, when Sarah heard this, she laughed to herself for no one to hear saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? Reference to being happy about having a child. My Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Indeed I shall bear a child when I am so old? So the Lord had heard it. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And then God says it again, what he said earlier, a second time in a testimony of two witnesses. At the appointed time I will return to you when the time revives, at the springtime, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah was afraid, and she denied it. I did not laugh. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, is this some big rebuke here to Sarah? No, I don't think so. Naturally, she's nervous at being caught out, and she feels funny about laughing. And this was the extremely mild rebuke. What God is actually doing is, is encouraging her to laugh. He's encouraging her to laugh. He says, oh, no, I didn't laugh. He says, oh, yes, you did. Go ahead. That's the whole point. Your son is going to be named Isaac. Laughter. That's the whole point. Laughter is our response to the unexpected, or it's a response to something unexpected that's positive. Unexpected things bring either sudden fear or sudden joy. Let's say the mail comes tomorrow, and you open up the envelope, and there's a sealed envelope, and the return address says, Internal Revenue Service. Okay, sudden fear, right? Let's say you open it up, and the IRS says, In searching through our records, we've discovered we owe you $2,000. So here's your check. Hey, sudden joy. The unexpected things bring about these responses. This is the nature of jokes, you see. What makes a joke funny is the surprise element, that the answer doesn't have anything to do with the question. So how many elephants can you get in a Volkswagen? Well, five, two in the front, three in the back. Now, that was funny the first time you heard it. It's not funny after you've heard it 50 times, so it's not funny today. But it was funny once, you see, because the answer doesn't square with the question. And that's what makes humor humorous. That's what makes a practical joke humorous to everybody but the person that's being practiced on. Well, God's laughter here and throughout the Bible involves a sudden turn of events 
but establishes the righteous and crushes the wicked. And it's always both. And Isaac is a sign of both. When Isaac is conceived, God moves and gives laughter to Abraham and Isaac and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and Adam and Zeboim. They come together, sudden fear upon the wicked who have been oppressing the righteous, and sudden laughter and joy to the righteous who suddenly are delivered. Just when it seems the worst, it's midnight, it's pitch black outside, the angel of death is going through the city, and suddenly we're delivered. It's darkest before the dawn, as they say. And in the Bible, that's imaged out many times. Things are terrible, and suddenly God does something that reverses the situation. We've called attention to it in the book of Judges in the past because it's so common in there, particularly with Samson. Samson's always doing funny, ridiculous things because Samson is another miracle son. His mother was barren, unable to have children. He's like Isaac, and he does all these weird, funny things. He does them on purpose. He's a very intelligent man, and he knew that humorous things get around. People will be talking about these stories all over, and that will encourage the hearts of the saints. And so Samson did a lot of crazy things in order to uh, carry out his evangelistic mission to encourage the righteous. But all of these unexpected surprise turns of events have to do with the gospel. They're signs of the gospel. Satan thought that he had won at the cross, you know. It was dark. It wasn't midnight, but it might as well have been because it was pitch black for three hours. And our Lord died, and Satan thought he'd won, and then surprise. So this is God's laughter. It's his sudden turn of events that makes the righteous laugh and makes the wicked flee and hide in the rocks. And Isaac is a sign of both. When God moves in history, both things happen. God's action in salvation always involves both the rescue of his people and the destruction of his enemies. They always go together in the Bible. So like at the flood, the flood destroyed the wicked but also save the righteous. The same waters that washed away the wicked held up the ark. Or at the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted, and the righteous went through. It rained on them. They got water from above the firmament, and the waters from below the firmament came and washed away the wicked. It's the same event. And in the New Testament, Jesus ascends to heaven. And in the book of Acts, we see that as soon as he ascends to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit upon the righteous to give them power and joy. And we see in the book of Revelation that when he ascends and takes the scroll from the hand of the Father, then he brings judgment upon the wicked, which most of us see as, first of all, the destruction of Jerusalem because they wouldn't repent, and then all the other judgments in history and at the end of history as well. But whether you interpret the book of Revelation that way or not, the principle is the same. When the Lamb ascends on high, Pentecost, blessing for the righteous, Holocaust, Destruction on those who refuse to repent. They go together, and so it is here as well. The birth of Isaac is a sign of the judgment of the world. So God encourages Sarah to laugh. And this laughter theme is going to come up again two or three more times. It's one of the most prominent themes in the story of Abraham. Later on we'll find Ishmael laughing, and the question will come up, who is God's laughter? Is it Ishmael or is it Isaac? Because that has to be decided. Well, then we come to the evaluation of the wicked, verses 16 to the end. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. Again, language of seeing. God saw and it was good. Now God is going to see Sodom and he will evaluate it. They looked towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Now by itself that seems a little bit trivial, but when we begin to think about it and look at what happens next, Abraham is right there with God and the angels. He's part of the evaluation team. He's also walking towards Sodom with them. And God is going to ask Abraham's advice in just a few minutes. He's going to say, Abe, what do you think? You're old enough now to be made a council member. We're taking you in, and we want your advice as well. And the Lord said, Shall I hang from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, in your notes... It says, the friend of God. The Bible says that Abraham was the friend of God. And that's wonderful, each of us to be the friend of God, our best friend. But beyond that, the expression friend of God in the Bible has a technical meaning. 
has a technical meaning that's extremely important to what we're about to read. The friend of God. Jesus uses that technical meaning in John 15. I left you room to jot these verses down. In John 15, verses 14 and 15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. That means up till then they've been slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. So what's a slave? A slave is one who doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. And what's a friend? For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. What's the definition of a friend in this technical sense? A friend knows everything the master knows. Now, the friend is the closest privy counselor of the king. The king's friend is the closest privy counselor to the king. The king's friend is the one man who knows everything the king knows. And the king consults him on everything, not some things. You know, he's not the Department of State. So if the king has a problem in that area, he goes to the Department of State. And he's not the Department of War, so that if there's a problem in that area, he goes to the War Department. And he's not the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. He's not specialized. He doesn't know some things and advise the king on some points. The king's friend knows everything. He has access to every single bit of information. Now, in the Old Testament, this is referred to. And I'll give you the verses. 1 Kings 4, verse 5, refers to the office of the king's friend that Jesus is alluding to here. Talking about Solomon. Now, King Solomon was king over all Israel. And this is chapter 4, verse 5. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zabad, the son of Nathan, a priest, was king's friend. That doesn't mean the king's good buddy that he played golf with, though they might have played golf. It means king's friend, you see. And Ahishar was over the household, and Adoniram was over the men subject to forced labor. That becomes important later on. But right now, Zabad was king's friend. We also see reference to king's friend in 2 Samuel 15:37. Hushai the archite was David's friend. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. What's going on here is that Absalom has taken over the city, and David and his counselors get together and say, what should we do? And they decide to send Hushai the archite, king's friend, to go in to deceive Absalom and become part of his advisory court. So Hushai comes along, and in chapter 16, verse 15, we read, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. Ahithophel was Absalom's advisor. Now it came to pass, when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, No, I'll stay with you. And he goes on from there. You see, there's an office called king's friend, and it's the closest counselor to the king. Another verse you might want to jot down is 1 Chronicles 27.33. Ahithophel was counselor to the king, and Hushai the archite was the king's friend. So it's one thing to be a counselor, but it's even closer to be the king's friend. Jesus says the friend is one who knows everything. Now, there are two men in the Bible that are good examples of king's friends. One is Mordecai in the book of Esther. The other is Joseph. And Joseph's an important person for us to think about because Joseph goes from being slave to being king's friend. And that's what Jesus says. No longer do I call you slaves, servants, because before you didn't know anything. Now you're king's friends. You're like Joseph. Now, Abraham is called the friend of God. In James 2... Verse 23, read that one, and we'll stop the Bible hopscotch. James 2, 23. 
Scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Right? And that also is found in Isaiah 41, verse 8, and 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. Now this is the great passage that shows God treating Abraham as his friend, as privy counselor. You see, the king's friend not only has access to the confidential information, he has access to the secret documents. And not only the secret documents, but the top secret documents and the for-your-eyes-only documents. He has access to every piece of information the king does. Now, Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, but friends, because I've told you everything. Before the New Testament was written, God had only revealed part of the truth. In kernel form, it was all revealed. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed, says Augustine. So, in a sense, it's all there in the Old Testament, but it wasn't clearly revealed. All right? So they were still servants. That's why Paul in Galatians says, in the Old Covenant, everyone is like a slave and not yet a son, not yet the heir. He's not of age, and so he's like a slave. He doesn't know everything yet. But Jesus says, I've told you everything. And this is it, folks. We have a completed Bible. That means we know everything. That makes us all king's friends. And that means that we're supposed to pray to God. We have access to come into the holiest place of all and to argue with the Lord and to discuss matters with him. Knowing the Psalms, David argues with God, and here Abraham is going to argue with God. Amos argues with God just a little bit. Amos chapter 7. The Lord showed me, and he was forming a locust swarm, and it came about the locusts had finished eating the vegetation, and I said, Lord, please pardon, how can Jacob stand? And the Lord changed his mind. It shall not be, said the Lord. Hmm. You see, God, of course, can do anything and knows everything. But he deals with us in prayer by asking our advice and asking us to bring our petitions and our advice to him. Is there a problem? Then we come and ask the Lord as king's friend, those who have access to all the information, things that other people don't know. So, God can't hide anything from Abraham because Abraham is king's friend. God is going to reveal it to him and basically ask his advice. Verse 18, the Lord goes on to say, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Emphasizes much seed, blessings to the nations. And then the blessings have to come through the seed, through the training of children. God says, I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep. Always translate that guard. Anytime you see keep in the Bible, think guard. In order to guard the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. How is the earth going to be blessed? It's going to be blessed through Abraham's children by training the children righteously. Same principle is true today. And as the children go out and their children go out, and they are trained in the righteousness, in true faithfulness and loyalty to God, true faith and good works, then the kingdom begins to come more and more. And God's blessings will come to all the nations of the earth. Now there's a particular reason why attention is called to this here. Remember chapter 18 goes with chapter 19. What happened to Lot's children? Every single one of them was lost. Even the two that escaped were lost. Remember, and we'll come to this again next week, starting in chapter 14, Lot and Abraham begin to separate, and Abraham goes from glory to glory and from strength to strength until he becomes, you know, just the most important person in the entire land. Everybody wants to be allied with Abraham. But Lot goes down and down and down and down and down until finally he's living in a cave. Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. And Lot is living in the dirt till the end of his days a living tomb because he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And so this contrast gets greater and greater as we go. And here it is again. Abraham will train his children righteously and they'll follow me. Not only the special seed Isaac, but also Ishmael and Midian and Medad and all the other sons that Abraham is going to have later on. They'll all be righteous people who will permeate the nations at least temporarily with the gospel. But then the Lord begins to take Abraham into his confidence. 
as king's friend. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. What is this outcry from Sodom? Well, it's the blood. Remember in chapter 4, verse 10 of Genesis, my brother's blood cries out from the ground. And here it is in Sodom. There's nobody in Sodom that particularly regrets what's going on. Lot was the only person whose spirit was vexed. But the outcry is all the shed blood. And as a figure there, the ground has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, and now it cries to me. It calls up the avenger of blood. And so it is here. Sodom and Gomorrah, the outcry. This sets up another Exodus story, as I said. And remember from the book of Exodus that the outcry of the people in Egypt called upon God to come and move and send the angel into the city to bring death upon Egypt and to pull his people out. And that's what will happen here in the destruction of Sodom. These patterns repeat so that we become familiar with God's ways and how God acts in history. So God is going to go down and inspect things. Now, as a matter of fact, God doesn't go down. I've got a question here. Why did God say, I will go down, when it was actually the two angels who went down? Hmm. Well, where the angels go, of course, God goes. God is with them, although he particularly remains behind to talk to Abraham. By the way, every now and then you'll run into somebody who hasn't read this carefully and feels like the three men who appeared to Abraham were the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh-uh. No, it was God, probably the second person of the Trinity, because he's the one who appears and talks to people. And then two regular angels. These same two angels are the ones who go down to Sodom and meet with Lot later on. So bear that in mind just in terms of Bible information. But God doesn't go, well, a couple of things that help us here. One is, remember when the cherubim appear to Ezekiel, they're full of eyes. Remember? Kind of strange to think about looking at a cherub, whatever they look like, with their four faces facing four ways and full of eyes. I sometimes think of a plastic bag cherub full of eyeballs, but I don't know if that's what they look like or not. And then there were the wheels, and the wheels were full of eyes. So you got a wheel with eyes all around it. And then the book of Zechariah says, these are the eyes of the Lord that range to and fro throughout the earth. God sends his angels to inspect for him. And there again is this theme of seeing. God saw what he had made and it was good. Now God is going to send his eyes, his cherubim, full of eyes, and those two are going to go down and inspect Sodom. So that's the first slant on things. The angels are full of eyes. And the second is, there are two of them. Why? Two witnesses. Testimony of two witnesses. Always have two witnesses. So, God says, I will go down, and what he means is, I'll send my angels who are full of eyes, and I'll send two of them, so I'll get a testimony of two witnesses. Verse 22, Then the two men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. The Lord remained behind and was really soliciting Abraham's question. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then we'll read it quickly because you know this story. Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. but thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous persons who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place for their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, though I am but dust and ashes. Now, folks, it's true that we get to be king's friend, but we don't get to be presumptuous. The king's friend is still the king's friend, and we address him as dust and ashes. But we still are to pray to him and address him. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the city because of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose forty are found there. He probably said more than that, but we're getting the gist of it. And he said, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Only this once, suppose 10 are found there. He said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. 
As soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. It just goes on. The commentators often take this to mean that Abraham was concerned about Lot, and Abraham Jews God down to ten. You know, this is your Jewish merchant arguing about the price, and he gets him down to ten because if we read chapter 19, we'll find that Lot had sons. That's two sons at least. He had daughters unmarried. That's two daughters. He had sons-in-law, plural. So that's two sons-in-law and at least two married daughters. That's eight. And then there's Lot and Mrs. Lot. That's ten. So what Lot wants to do is make sure we get down to ten and God will spare the city. But that's really not what's going on here. I think we'll put it off till next week, but let me just, for the sake of making this tape complete so that you don't worry about it, so that you don't wonder where we're going, Abraham knows that this is a final judgment. He knows that Sodom has had its chance. Abraham's already ministered to Sodom. Sodom was destroyed once, remember, by Shedor Laomer. And Abraham went in and saved the city. And Abraham preached the gospel. He brought Melchizedek in, and the king of Sodom heard it, but Sodom refused to repent. So now it's final judgment. The iniquity of the Amorite is full. And Abraham knows that. And Abraham's point is, will you ever destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the answer is no, not even for one. If there's one righteous person in the city, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. What does God do? He takes the righteous out of the city before he destroys it. And that's what Abraham learns from the questions. Whether God destroys the city or not, the question is, will God destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the answer is, no, God never fully destroys the righteous with the wicked. In historical judgments that come in history, the righteous do suffer along with the wicked. But in terms of a final judgment that Abraham knows is going to come on Sodom, God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. He takes the righteous out before he brings the judgment on the wicked. That's the gist of this, and that's where it's going. Well, we'll return to that and summarize it in a little bit more detail next time. And then we'll look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.